Welcome to the Uncle Dan and Sophie Jam. I am Dan Wakefield, and I'm a writer. I'm Sophie Fott. I'm a musician. We believe that music and stories are made for each other. That's what we'll give you. Tonight, we explore the deep connection between music and memory in the arts and in the brain. Our guests are prize-winning author Susan Neville and Dr. Megan Maskell director of the music therapy program at IUPUI. You guys are great. <laughs> So we're here tonight to talk about the amazingly deep connection between music and memory. And uh, Megan here has probably witnessed more evidence of that than, than most in her work as a music therapist. And I was wondering if we could start, Megan, with just a story uh, from your practice of uh, something you've seen that really proved to you that that connection exists. Absolutely. So I practice primarily in hospice and palliative care. So I work a lot with older adults who have Alzheimer's disease. And one day, and I'm going to tell this story. I'm from Iowa. I'm, I'm a Hoosier by transplant. But I'm going to tell you a story that includes the University of Iowa fight song. So we're all going to be nice about it. Okay. <laughs> Um, I was working for a community hospice in the eastern part of the state of Iowa, and I went out one day to do an assessment of a new patient, and she was in a long-term care facility. So I went in, and she was in the day room, beautiful, beautiful place, and I walked in, and I tried to get some information about this patient from the staff that worked there and from her file that was there. I hadn't had an opportunity to talk to her family. And the one thing that kept coming up over and over again when I talked with her staff and when I looked in her file was how much she loved the Iowa Hawkeyes. I am a two-time grad of the University of Iowa. Go Hawkeyes. And if any of you know the Iowa fight song, um, I thought if this woman loves the University of Iowa Hawkeyes, I'm gonna try the fight song and see what happens. So for those of you who don't know, Meredith Wilson, the man who wrote The Music Man, also wrote the University of Iowa fight song. We're a rare breed in that we are the only school that has our fight song. Nobody else has our fight song. So I went in to go play it. It's a, actually a lovely tune. And I started to play it. And there's this part in the fight song where the crowd, the band stops playing, and the whole crowd yells, go Hawks. And what you do is you go, go Hawks, right? You raise your hand up in the air. And so I was playing it on the guitar kind of quietly and singing along with it, and I got to that part, and I wanted to see what would happen. Now, up to that point, she had been sitting with her head down. Her posture was um, sort, of, sort of curled in on herself, 
And in that moment, she sat up straight as a board, looked at me dead in the eyes, and yelled, go Hawks! <laughs> and I thought, I like this lady. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing that happens to me pretty much every day when I, when I work with um, patients, even patients who have severe damage to their brains. There is still that part of them that is a musical being. I guess the question is why? <laughs> um, do you have any, can you go into the science of it a little bit? I absolutely can. So science, uh, any scientists in the house? Nope, okay. In science, we like to say, I don't really know, but I have several excellent theories. So I have several excellent theories about why humans are musical. And first of all, I want you to take a moment to appreciate that you are, in fact, a musical being. Regardless of whether or not you play an instrument, or you sing, or whatever it might be, your heart beats at a steady rate. When our hearts don't beat at a steady rate, we consider that to be a form of cardiac disease, right? So we call it even arrhythmia, right? Which is Latin for a lack of rhythm. So our hearts beat at a steady beat. Um, our bodies are very cyclical, they're very rhythmic, right? Our, we're eating supper now, right? It's supper time. We know it's supper time because we have a cycle that our bodies go through. We know when we're supposed to go to sleep and when we're supposed to wake up. Um, we live in a state that has four seasons. So our bodies also change over the course of those four seasons every calendar year. Um, for women, we have monthly cycles that we go through. Human beings are inherently rhythmic. And, and it is funny because when you lose that rhythm, like I said, cardiac arrhythmia is a disease. When we lose those rhythms, it is considered to be a form of disease. So human beings are inherently rhythmic and we are inherently musical. So one of the great debates in the world of anthropology is what came first, speech or singing? Did we develop speech because we first learned how to sing? Or did we learn how to sing because we learned how to speak? And the truth of the matter is, is that we're probably never ever going to know, right? So that's, that's one of the great questions, is which came first, really the chicken or the egg? We also know that it's highly likely that human beings first communicated, potentially even before we had speech, that we probably did it through rhythm. So we probably did it through playing instruments. Um, the oldest known flute that I can remember off the top of my head is at least 30,000 years old. Now, if you can think about what humans were doing 30,000 years ago, we were hiding out in caves trying not to get eaten by big scary animals, right? We were really hoping that Homo sapiens sapien was gonna make it. Um, so the fact that human beings took the time to make instruments shows us, gives us the idea that there's something to a biological and evolutionary advantage to being musical. Now, for the fellows in the room, I'll tell you that gentlemen who play the guitar are statistically significantly sexier <laughs> than men who don't. I teach guitar if you'd like to sign up. <laughs> we also, so there is this relationship too between um, fertility rights and music. When we talk about the brain, this is where stuff gets really interesting. So unlike sight and speech and other forms of sensory input, music doesn't have a particular home in the brain. 
Like I can po point to my occipital lobe and go, right, this is where sight primarily is. Um, I can point down here and tell you this is primarily where balance and movement is. Reasoning is up in the frontal lobes, my sensory cortex, my premotor cortex, right? I know that my speech centers are over here, but music doesn't have a map like that. Music exists essentially everywhere simultaneously in the brain. So if we were to play your favorite piece of music for you and put you in a functional MRI and run a scan at the same time, your brain would light up like a Christmas tree. And that's because when we listen to music, first of all, the signal is really complex. So if you think about what Sophie just did with the trio, not only do you have the saxophone going, which in and of itself is playing a different melody, it has a different timbre. Timbre is the, how we know what an instrument is, right? It's based on a series of overtones, if you want to talk physics. And then the drum has its own timbre and its own rhythm that it's playing at the same time. And then our good friend here on the bass has something entirely different that he's doing. So that signal is incredibly complex, even though there are no lyrics to the song that they were playing. Music is actually one of the most complex signals that our brains can process. There's so much going on at one time. So that whole idea that music doesn't have a particular home in the brain is important, and it helps us explain why music is so resilient. So if any of you remember when Gabby Giffords was shot, one of the very first things that she did was she started receiving music therapy services after she had been stabilized physically. She worked with a speech language pathologist, physical therapist, occupational therapist, all the therapists, and a music therapist. And part of the reason why music therapy was effective for her, even though she'd had this significant injury to her brain, was because we didn't have to rely on one spot. So your brains are these amazing organs. Do you know that there are more neural connections in your brain than there are stars in the known universe? Universe, not galaxy, universe. We actually have a far better chance of understanding what happens in the universe than we do understanding everything that happens in the human brain. So we don't have this local center that makes us more resilient. We also are this wonderful thing called neuroplastic. And you can, in fact, teach an old dog new tricks. And part of that is because our brains retain this ability to essentially rewire themselves. And so because music exists in all these different places in the brain at the exact same time, if one of those places gets damaged, the other places just fill in. So that's why you can have somebody who's just been shot who can, in fact, sing. Right? You can have somebody who has end-stage Alzheimer's disease who can sing. You have people who will still tap their toes, or if I give them a Chiquita, it's this like little teeny tiny maraca, if I give them a Chiquita, they'll be able to play it in time. I had a patient once who had been a Girl Scout leader for years, and she was the song leader. And she had end-stage dementia, and I would go and I would play, I'd start playing with her, and, um, and I would start singing, and she would hum. She couldn't remember the words to the songs anymore, but she would hum in perfect harmony. Her rhythm was amazing, and she would hum this perfect, beautiful harmony while I sang. 
And that's because there, are this, there, there is no one musical spot in the brain. So it sounds like music is really something that's quite fundamental to who we are as human beings. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I think the band needs to play a song now. <laughs> I think we, we're, we're going to play a song called All the Things You Are and just kind of think about that idea that music is not really auxiliary, it's fundamental. Thank you. 
here for Kenny Phelps on the drums. Jesse Whitman on the bass. I think there's more than one way to think about what makes us feel better, right? Sometimes you really need to have a good cry, right? And thank you to Adele for writing someone like you. Because that's like the best crying song ever. <laughs> and especially as Midwesterners, I'm a native Midwesterner, we tend to be a passive aggressive folk. We tend to hold our emotions inside of us. We don't like to share them. So it is really important when we talk about this idea of feeling better, but feeling better sometimes means getting your emotions out. It doesn't necessarily mean feeling good all the time. It means getting everything out so that you feel healthy. And so your, your basal ganglia has a number of structures in it, but really what it does, it's involved in coordinating, you're regulating your movements and helping you remember things, forming habits. It's also the seat of your reward system. So the things that set off your reward system in your brain are sex, drugs, rock and roll, and gambling. <laughs> so what happens when you listen to music, it comes into your ears and it actually crosses over. So it goes, if it comes in your right ear, it's gonna cross over to your left brain, it's gonna cross back over to the right side and then cross back again to the left side. And so the opposite for your left ear. So there's this constant crisscrossing. It happens multiple times. And every place that it crosses over, it creates essentially a backup system for music processing. So when you say that music must be like a fundamental part of who we are as human beings, Sophie, I really think it is. Our brains don't fritter away resources, um, especially not when we were trying to develop and claim our space on the earth. So when it comes into your brain, it gets processed in a whole bunch of different areas, goes through your sensory cortex, your your primary motor cortex, it goes to your premotor cortex, your language areas, and then it also goes to this basal ganglia. And the basal ganglia is one of the oldest structures in the human brain. And because it's old, it's important. And because it's old and important, it is down in the center of your brain. So the way that your brain is built, the things that are really important are protected. And so it's protected by the outer cortex of your brain. So you don't want to break your basal ganglia. That's a real bad thing to break. But it's really unlikely that you're going to because it's so important it's protected in the center of your brain. Center-ish. Um, but it is part of that reward system and it is the home of memory. Part of the structures of the basal ganglia include the home of memory. And because music gets processed there, there is this biological relationship between our memories and the music that's coming into our brains. That makes me think of another song. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me think of um, Stardust, written by Hoagy Carmichael. Um, if you know the words to this song, he's literally talking about what you just described. <coughs> There's this love affair, and he associates it with this Stardust melody. And then, okay, that was a long time ago, and all I've got left is this melody. And... Uh, yeah, I think we ought to play it. Mm -hmm. 
was wondering if you could share a little bit more, Megan, about the work that you do specifically with patients who are struggling with memory and what techniques and um, just strategies you utilize to help trigger memories and get people to remember those things that had been buried or forgotten. Yeah, 
give that a shot. <laughs> so one of the things that I do with people, I work with people in all different stages of the disease. So when I work with adults who are in those early stages, some of what we're doing is giving them tools to work on their emotional expression. Because as you can imagine, in those early stages, you know that there's a problem. And that's really frustrating. Um, imagine how frustrated you get when you forgot something that you know somebody told you. Right? It's frustrating. Right? Now imagine that being the regular course of your life and also knowing that it's not going to get any better. It's only going to get worse. So we have a lot of issues with depression, anxiety, and then that frustration. So some of what we do in those early stages is to give people opportunities to create some coping skills. So we do things like songwriting as a form of emotional expression, right? Giving people the opportunity to get their feelings out, and then we create music to go along with those lyrics. I like to use hand percussion because it's pretty easy to use. It's very adaptable. We have stands we can put drums in so that the, if the person has problems with their upper body strength, they don't have to hold on to it. They just can hit it. Sometimes you just need to beat the hell out of a drum. <laughs> And it feels good, right, to beat on something. There's something sort of primal about beating on a drum, too. Would you, it feels good, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we also need to make sure that our caregivers are healthy. So we will teach them coping skills. And sometimes that's as simple as helping people create a playlist that has music that they can listen to that just makes them feel better. And I can tell you that when you listen to a piece of music that you love, you know, the kind that gives you goosebumps, when you do that, your blood pressure actually goes down and your stress hormones go down. And then your immune system actually starts functioning at a higher level. And that, that reaction, your body feels the repercussions of that positive reaction for up to two weeks. So just listening to that piece of music that makes, makes your arms tingle and you feel really good, that makes you measurably healthier than not listening to music. I, it occurs to me that in your work, probably there are many, many songs that are tied to people and stories and specific instances like this. And it must be hard to wander around and hear songs on the radio. <laughs> Uh, when you've got this, but I, I was thinking, yeah, maybe just what would that be like to have so many deep memories tied to songs? But I, I, I wondered as you were saying that, uh, what if you said a favorite poem to the person? Would that have an effect even though it's not music per se? That's a little bit different because in Oftentimes, in order for something to be really mm. effective, it needs to be a song that the person was already familiar with. Mm. But research actually shows us that when people play music together and they sing in choirs together, that your brain waves, your heart rates, and your respiration, well, not your respiration rate, because you've got to blow your horn, <laughs> but, but their breathing and their heart rates and their brain waves actually, you wind up becoming in sync with one another. You actually are physiologically in sync with one another. So it's not just that you can you know, throw a glance at the other members of the band and know where you're supposed to be. But on a very fundamental physical level, <coughs> you all are sort of literally on the same page. 
I, I also, you made me think of, I, I've heard that opera, <coughs> the, the, the concept is that when people break into song is because their emotion is too great to simply say it. I've so heard that theory too. I would say that's true for the romantic composers, and starting with the classical period and later on. This is sort of my wheelhouse. I have an undergraduate degree in vocal performance. So, but yes, later on when we got into the classical era and, um, and the romantic era, that was absolutely the case, was that it was supposed to be, and when you look at operas, especially when the soprano sings, mm. I'm a soprano, so I always just pay attention to the sopranos, but when, because I'm a soprano, but when the sopranos sing, right, it's always, we're either a princess in distress, right, waiting for somebody to come help us, or we're about to die from tuberculosis. <laughs> and I'm not sure how we sing all those, seriously, you sing the aria, the biggest aria in the whole opera, and in the next scene, you die from TB. <laughs> Probably because you just used all your lung power to <laughs> sing the big aria. Well, I'd like to take us back to a memory of Dan's. I know that you have a memory associated with the song, How High the Moon. Yes, that, and I have some of my high school classmates here, and I don't know if this would be true for them. I think it might be that whenever I want to recall high school, or if I'm writing something of that era, I just have to hear How High the Moon. And it has to be the Les Paul, Mary Ford <coughs> rendition. There are different songs that can me evoke places and times. And in fact, when I, I was writing a book called New York in the 50s, a memoir, and while I was writing it, I constantly played Miles Davis' Sketches of Spain. And the book didn't have anything to do with Spain, but that's what I heard when I was living there in that time. And I, I could play that, and it was like, I remember I could look out a window and see who was there. So I, I've often used those things. To, so you'd say music is sort of a part of your creative process, and you use it to, to conjure up these memories? Yes, I mean, if I have trouble with a, an era or something or that, yeah, like I'm writing about my goddaughter in Miami and all I have to do is play the Gypsy Kings. <laughs> That's what I was hearing when I first moved to Miami. So yeah, it does that for me. Well, I think uh, the band is going to play How High the Moon Now and bring, <laughs> back, bring those high school days back one more time. Great. <laughs> Thank you. 
you. Kenny Phelps on the drums. Jesse Whitman on the bass. Dan Wakefield, Susan Neville, Megan Masco. I'm Sophie Fott. This is the Uncle Dan and Sophie Jam. We will be right back after a quick break. Thank you.
So before we continue on, we have to do our radio break. This is the Uncle Dan and Sophie Jam. We're coming to you from the Jazz Kitchen. We have Dan Wakefield and myself, Sophie Fott, and our two guests are author Susan Neville and music therapist Megan Masco. Well, somebody who's sadly not with us tonight, and we've all read about Senator Luger, and some of my classmates here and I were, were good friends of his at Shortridge, and uh, he was really an amazing guy, an amazing friend, as well as all of his huge worldly accomplishments. I'll just tell you one story of, uh, he and I wrote for the Shortridge Daily Echo, and we, we both wrote a sports column and we thought of them as rival columns. You know, uh, mine was Sportlight and his was Shooting the Works. And we called each other Sportlight and Shooting and used to write each other years later. You know, I would write Dear Shooting. And then when he got to the Senate, I thought, well, that doesn't sound very good. I better <laughs> knock that off. But when we were at Shortridge, we both went to a journalism conference in French Lick, Indiana, and we shared a room, and at night we go in, we each had a twin bed, and Luger would turn the lights out, and then he told me that he was going to say his prayers. And uh, that, to me, was an act of courage, to tell another kid, you're gonna say your prayers, and he said them aloud. And after that, he said, uh, we would talk about our own dreams and uh, what we hoped for in life. He said to me, uh, Dan, if you could be anything at all at Shortridge, what would you be? Without a hesitation, I said, I would be high point man on the basketball team. Luger said, oh, Dan, you're so frivolous, <laughs> which was absolutely correct. And I said, well, what would you want to be? Well, president of the senior class, uh, number one academically in the class, all the things that uh, were appropriate for a person of accomplishment. So uh, I continued to be frivolous, and he continued to do great things in the city, the state, and the world. And well, we started this, we started this half of the show um, with a Jerome Kern tune entitled The Song Is You. Um, thinking about how so often music can be tied to memories of a certain person. And then we, we paid tribute to a person that Dan wanted to remember, Senator Luger. I think it, it might be time to get a little personal here. <laughs> um, we're all sharing memories of things that have happened specifically to us. Well, I, I wanted to say that the reason we're all here tonight is that one night, I walked into the Chatterbox uh, downtown on Mass Ave, and I'd been told that there's this terrific young woman saxophone player I ought to hear on Wednesday nights. So I went in one Wednesday night, and just as I went in, she happened to be playing one of my favorite songs from the 50s in New York, which was I Should Care. And I, I loved it. And that I, at the break, talked to her and said that uh, I, I used to have a, a record of June Christie singing that song. And, and so I later went in and gave her a 
CD of June Christie singing that song. And then uh, at another time in there, she told me that she liked the record and she particularly liked a song called uh, This Will Be My Shining Hour. And so I had a, a, a novel of mine set in World War II that was republished and I asked her to come and play This Will Be My Shining Hour. And then I was doing the Uncle Dan radio uh, show. I asked Sophie to come and play, but she played a song at the intermission at the end of the show. And when that show was over, I said to Sophie, listen, uh, I don't want to do another show where I have to talk for a whole hour, so why don't we have a show where you play music half the time and I talk half the time, and then we'll get other people too. So that's how we happen to have the Uncle Dan and Sophie Jam, and that's where we are and who we are. So. <laughs> And it just goes to show that I think it, you'd be hard-pressed to find a person that doesn't have memories that are tied to songs and people in their lives that are tied to songs. And I think that is a huge part of the work you do, right, Megan, is finding those songs and helping those people connect again when things get in the way. Megan, if you ever come to help me out as I get, get you know into those years, which is happening very quickly, <laughs> Uh, my, I think music got me through high school. If it hadn't been for music, I wouldn't have made it through high school. Well, I guess since everybody's uh, going back to high school, <laughs> I don't have a great story to go along with this song, but for me, um, high school was a time where I was really discovering some of the saxophone players that I loved the best. And uh, every day when I would ride the bus to school, I was listening to some of these great saxophone players and just picturing myself being in a different world that was not high school, but rather somewhere where people liked this kind of music. And um, the song we're about to play was recorded pretty memorably by Joe Henderson. It's, it's a Joe Beam tune, actually, and it's called A Felicidade. So you can think of me riding the school bus while we play this. Thank you. 
some really good news for all of you and you and anybody else who plays an instrument. Even if you just took music classes when you were in elementary school, that studying music actually has what we call neuroprotective qualities to it. So by studying an instrument um, or studying music when you were in school, that has a lifelong, it has those neuroprotective qualities and so people who play an instrument are actually less likely to develop dementia than people who don't. So some of the things that you can do to take care of your brain are study an instrument. It's never too late to study an instrument. Puzzles are really good for you. Exercise, very important. Also, eating fruits and vegetables, sorry. Well, uh, we wish you all the best on your continued journey Thank you. towards recovery. And I think we have time for one more positive story. And I know which one you want to hear. I have, there's one that I want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of great experiences working with generations of families. I was working for a small community hospice in rural Iowa, and I got called out to go see somebody who'd been in the nursing home for quite a while. She'd been actually there for a couple of years. She had end-stage dementia. And I got out there, talked with the staff, um, her granddaughter and her great-granddaughter happened to be there that day. And her great-granddaughter was probably five or six years old. We were also looking at this very likely being the last week of this woman's life. Her organs were starting to shut down and the physical signs were there that this was probably going to be the last few days of her life. So the granddaughter had come essentially to kind of say goodbye and she'd brought her daughter with her. Well, I knew that this patient really liked Johnny Cash. And I walked, I walked into the room and I introduced myself. Little kids love guitars. So, I mean, I was like in like Flint just because I had a guitar. And um, I started to play Walk the Line by Johnny Cash. That opening lick is just so iconic. And as soon as I started playing it, the, the little great-granddaughter, her eyes got really big. She got really excited. and. So I started playing, and the little girl started singing along with me. So her great-grandmother's in the bed. She's not talking. Her eyes are not open. Um, her breathing's changed a little bit, but there aren't a ton of, a ton of signals that, that um, you know, she's not, like, 
dancing for me or anything like that. She was in bed, and this little girl's singing along with me, and I got to the part where, you know, because you're mine, I walk the line, right? So we get to that part, and I go to sing that, and great-grandma, who's in the bed, eyes closed, starts singing with us. She, doesn't, she never opens her eyes, but she's there, and she's singing with us. And so it, by the time the song was over, we had great-grandma with her granddaughter and her great-granddaughter. We had three generations of this beautiful family um, making music together in what would ultimately be the last few days of this woman's life. Wow. And now we're going to play that song. Everybody, thank you for coming to another Uncle Dan and Sophie Jam. We're so glad you can make it. Let's hear it for Kenny Phelps on the drums, Jesse Whitman on the bass, 
Let's hear it for Dan Wakefield and Susan Neville, authors, extraordinaires. Let's hear it for Megan Masco, music therapist, really inspiring lady. My name is Sophie Fott. Thank you very much, and we hope you'll join us again.